Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 16. I think that's the last time we'll be saying that for a while. This is the day we wrap up our long-time sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. We are at the end. And last week, Shay went back to chapter 13 and talked about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ as such an important uh, teaching that Mark devoted an entire chapter to it. And then uh, two weeks ago, Keith preached on our furthest point so far in the Gospel of Mark, up to verse 8 of chapter 16 on the resurrection of Jesus. But today I want to talk about a problem with the ending of the Gospel of Mark, and then I want to talk about the amazing main message that we take away from Mark's Gospel. Uh, Let's read the last few verses again that Keith looked at a few weeks ago. We'll just pick up in verse 5 where some of the women who had been traveling with Jesus ever since he was in Galilee. These, many of these women are the mothers of some of the disciples, it says, back in chapter 15. But they're going to prepare Jesus' body. He's been crucified. He's been, his body's been laid in a tomb. But, but it hasn't been prepared according to Jewish custom yet because of the Sabbath. He died on a Friday. They couldn't do anything Saturday because Sabbath uh, can't work. So they're coming on Sunday morning, and we pick up in verse 5. It says, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. This is a very mysterious uh, young man, kind of a lost, if you've watched the show Lost, this is kind of that kind of a young man. This is a a young man that uh, the other gospels say was actually an angel. Uh, But they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed, as you and I would be. Don't be alarmed, he said. You just imagine kind of Desmond here with that accent. Uh, Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now right there, you're looking at your Bible and you're looking at the rest of the Gospel of Mark, and you see that there are still verses left, verses 9 through 20, but then you kind of notice as you're looking in the margin of your Bible, there's a little disconcerting note. Uh, If you have an ESV or an NIV or modern translation, the the NIV says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. What? And then they put verses 9 through 20 in italics, if you're reading the NIV, or I think the ESV puts it in brackets. What they're telling you is, we're going to go ahead and put this in here because it's been in here for centuries, but it's not really what Mark wrote. It's not really supposed to be part of the Bible, but here, here it is nonetheless, but we'll italicize it. See, nearly all scholars believe that the material that we call verses 9 through 20 is not part of the original text that Mark wrote, not part of his original gospel, but rather verses 9 through 20 were added. They were attached to Mark after verse 8, sometime probably in the second century, no earlier than that, maybe even later, by well-meaning scribes trying to provide some kind of an ending beside the abrupt drop-off of verse 8. Trying to provide some sort of ending to Mark that was more like the other gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. And then in the centuries that followed this mid-second century or later, the centuries that followed uh, as these so-thought corrections uh, were put in manuscripts and copied and circulated 
these added verses were ended up ended up being regarded as the real ending to Mark. All is fine and good until later, a few uh, years ago, hundred years ago or so, a little more. Uh, other manuscripts through archaeology and other investigations in ancient libraries, earlier manuscripts were discovered that do not have these added verses. Mark, in those more ancient manuscripts, ends abruptly after verse 8. Also, when we look at the writings of those we call the church fathers, they were the Christian leaders of the church who were writing in the first centuries of the church, their writings indicate that these added verses were known only in a few copies of Mark in their day and were not regarded as original to Mark even then. But it's not that big of a deal, although it seems weird to us, it's not that big of a deal because these verses are mostly just a collection of incidents and references from the other three Gospels in the New Testament. There's really nothing new in here or different. They're just sort of a summary of those things, uh, very much in a different style than Mark. But only the, ex- the only exception to that are the odd words attributed to Jesus regarding the particular signs that are to accompany all those who believe Verse 17 says, and this is according to the Mark, according to the, the, these verses attributed to Jesus, not according to Mark, but according to the second century scribes. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will, poison, it will not hurt them at all. It's all good news. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. That's going to be the signs of all those who believe. So either none of us are believers or uh, you're doing some things I don't know about on the side. Uh, but but, but that this is not found, this kind of statement coming from the mouth of Jesus is not found in any other of the Gospels, nowhere else uh, coming from as a description of believers in the New Testament, not in Matthew, not Luke, not John, nothing. And it's highly unlikely that some, it's highly unlikely this is something Jesus ever said. Which to me, at least, is a kind of a good news because this stuff is pretty, pretty weird. But other than that verse, there's nothing in this added section, these verses added 9 through 20, added sometime in the second century, not original to Mark, but there's nothing in there that's not found elsewhere in the New Testament. But we won't preach on these verses 9 through 20 because they're not part of the original Bible, they're not part of the Bible, and we, we, we preach the Bible here not good Christian books. And so the question still is, why does the original Mark end so abruptly at verse 8? And the answer is, we don't know. Uh, nobody really quite knows. Now, you can speculate. You know, Mark wrote on papyrus, and he, it's kind of a book kind of style. And you can speculate that ver- what would be the ending to the gospel, what would follow verse 8, would be a last page. And that, you know, as things go, last pages get torn off and somehow left behind or somehow missing. How would you like to have been that guy? You're in charge of carrying the gospel of Mark. And what? I don't know. I thought I had a... Well, did you see the last page? It's no big deal. You just lost part of the Bible for all eternity. We'll never know it. That's fine. Mistakes happen. Uh, that happened. But we don't know why. Obviously, God is sovereign and we're fine. We have other... Again, it's not really a huge problem because we do have the other New Testament accounts to give us many details about Jesus' resurrection. So no, no real loss. But even in the ending of Mark that we do have, all the way through verse 8, the story of Mark culminates in the resurrection of Jesus. Keith preached on that two weeks ago. All of the biblical accounts of the disciples' witness of Jesus' resurrection 
tell us that they saw him, they touched him, they spoke with him at length, they even ate with him. They were all witnesses of his resurrection, and as witnesses to his resurrection, they died testifying all the way to the end, most of them executed for their witness, most most of them executed for their testimony, that Jesus really rose bodily from the dead. And so that ending, that big thump at the end of Mark, as you read the Gospel of Mark, just as with the rest of the New Testament, you're reading the testimony of these witnesses. This is why the Gospel of Mark was written, that episode right there. Their message and the message of Mark is Jesus' resurrection proves that the kingdom of God is real, just as Jesus taught. It is a certain future. It proves that everything Jesus taught is true. You can trust it. And if you believe him, if you believe he spoke truth, you will enter his kingdom forever. This kingdom proven to be true and a certain future by his resurrection. Remember that the very first words in Mark that we hear out of the mouth of Jesus, way back in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, the time has come. It's closer than you think kind of idea. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. And as we've been saying, this was a kind of introductory summary of Jesus' message in Mark. Everything he taught and did is kind of under that, that main that main, that main uh, truth, but it also serves as a summoning conclusion to the Gospel of Mark. The story of Mark tells us that our life stories won't make any sense. They can't make any sense if any part of our life stories are disconnected from the forever of the kingdom of God. If any part of your life story is disconnected, whatever part that is, however many parts that is, they won't make, your life won't make sense. Because forever is real. Have you ever noticed that most of the things that we get excited about, most of the things that we set our hopes on in life don't have much of a shelf life to them? I mean, you learned that pretty much when you were just a kid opening Christmas presents, Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. Now, why, why is it so hard for us to be satisfied? Even when more than any other time in history, probably any other nation on the planet, our basic needs are so readily and easily met. Food, shelter, Heat, even air conditioning, running water. Are you kidding me? Kings would have died for that 300 years ago. Why do we stand in front of full closets and say we have nothing to wear? Maybe you did that this morning. Why do we look into fully stocked refrigerators and say we have nothing to eat? Why do we struggle so much with envy when we have already so much? When you think about it, why does our culture tend to be so increasingly over-sexualized? Just watch the Super Bowl today, halftime, commercial. Over-sexualized, as if we're crying for something that we're missing, but we can't find it. Why do we spend so much money on making sure that we are continuously entertained? Why do, we, why do so many of our closest relationships, 
including our marriages, seem to struggle and stagnate and deteriorate over time. Why do people disappoint us so easily? Why do we have such a hard time getting along happily with family and friends when we're on vacation together or big events or dinners together or with each other over a long period of time? Why do, we, why do so many of us consistently spend more than we earn? Even though we might make more than our grandparents ever made or even maybe our parents made at our age. Why didn't they spend so much over what they made? But we do. Why do we carry around so much debt? The evidence keeps reappearing in our lives that something is wrong. It's, it's as if in spite of so many of our necessities being so amply supplied, still one of life's key ingredients for happiness is always missing. We've lost Something We're missing something, something big that we keep unconsciously looking for in the wasted rubble of our plenty. And the story of Mark that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus tells us, at least in part, what it is. We have lost eternity. We're missing forever from our life story. It's the unrealistic expectations and the constant background noise of emptiness that always results when you tell yourself that this life is all there is. See, a human being created in the image of God with eternity imprinted upon their heart and soul will never find, will never feel at peace believing that this life is all there is. That's why when you disconnect your happiness in your mind and your attitude and your thinking, when you disconnect your longings, when you disconnect your hopes and joys, when you disconnect your happiness from forever, from eternity, it will always be disappointing, always eventually disappointing. You will never be happy with anything for long. You'll always eventually unconsciously return to looking for the missing ingredient. And our hopes and longings will always disappoint unless, until they are attached to forever. And I think that's because, like the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity in the heart of every human being. We always know unconsciously that happiness, that love, that satisfaction, fulfillment, always has to be connected to something forever, something eternal, or it's just unsatisfying and disappointing. So what if the whole story of the Gospel of Mark is right? What if everything Jesus taught and every miracle Jesus did and his crucifixion and his resurrection and everything all these things really mean for us really happened? Now what if human beings were created to live forever as the Bible says? What if you and I have forever hardwired inside of us like the Bible says? What if you can't make sense out of life without forever connected to everything, like the Bible says? What if this present life is not a destination, but a preparation for a far greater destination of forever, like the Bible says? 
What if this life really does have enormous, irreversible consequences in the next life, just like the Bible says? See, what if the story in Mark is all true? Have you connected the dots to your life, what it really means? About our world, about your world, about your life, and everything in it. It means what Tim Keller writes in his book, King's Cross, in the last chapter. He says this, Mark gives us the story of Jesus and declared that this is actually the world's true story as well. Jesus, the king, created all things in love. He has the power and the beauty to see his vision for the world through to its glorious end. To undo everything we have been able to do harm to it. Excuse me. To undo everything we have been able to do to harm it. To accomplish that, he had to come and die for it. Three days later, he rose again. And one day will come back again to usher in a renewed creation. Have you connected that story to your life? See, the story of Mark, the whole amazing story of Jesus' birth, of Jesus' teachings, of Jesus' miracles and death and resurrection offers forever back to us. And by giving back forever, we are given back our own story. We're given back, therefore, our true humanity. I once read that real estate magnate and now TV star Donald Trump said that when you construct a building, it's all about the windows. It's really interesting. Someone asked him why the units of his building sold while buildings, other buildings, remained empty. You know what his answer was? He says, go look at the windows in their building and then look at mine, and you will know the answer. See, as it turns out, all of his new buildings have floor-to-ceiling windows. These skyscrapers have windows. The entire wall is a window. The entire wall, you've been or you've at least seen these things. They're amazing. From floor all the way to the ceiling is all window. It's all about the windows. And the same thing is true of life. It's all about the windows. You are always looking at your life through some kind of window. Maybe some of us are living our lives and looking at our lives through a kind of little round window like in a cabin, a portal, a portal kind of window in a cabin on a cruise ship. And we think that we're on this fun journey in life. We're just living in the moment, as they say, and as they say you should. But in reality, we've shrunk our lives down to a little room looking at our whole life through a little round window. The irony is, all the while we're thinking we're living this adventure of just living in the moment, there's such a bigger reality and a much bigger adventure of forever, and we're completely missing out on it, because we're living in the moment, as we're told we should. Some of us see our lives like we're looking out a basement window. The view outside is mostly out of reach and out of sight, very little outside light gets in our dark basement room, so we spend most of our days self-focused and lonely. Few things excite us or bring joy because our self-absorbed world is limited to the small, dark room of self. Some of us see our lives through the windshield of a car, has the appearance 
of being wide and open spaces. But because you're always moving so fast and you're always so busy and so distracted going from one thing to the next, all you see are mostly just the things right in front of you passing you by. You look at life through the activities or entertainments that busy your schedule from one thing to the next without, rea- without really thinking about where your life is going. You're just racing through your years of life, texting and driving. But where are you going? There are all kinds of windows. You could come up with better examples than mine if you thought about it, of what window perhaps you're looking through right now. The point is that you are looking through a window right now that shapes the way you see and respond to your life. What's your window? So as we finish the Gospel of Mark, let me ask you a question. Do you believe the witness of Mark and the disciples of Jesus who wrote the New Testament? Do you believe Jesus' resurrection really happened? If so, have you connected the dots of what that means for your life? Or is it just something that you believe really happened and now life just kind of goes on? Have you connected the dots? See, because if you believe that the resurrection really happened, then you've just stepped in front of an enormous window to your life. A window that's huge. A window that's big and tall and wide that looks out a skyscraper. Look out that big, tall, wide skyscraper window and your whole outlook changes. Try looking at your life through that window. Look around. Look how far you can see. Notice how much light forever shines on everything else in your life. Everything looks different in the light of forever. You start to see your life differently because this life is not all there is. And the implications of that, the view that that brings to your life, is enormous. It means you don't have to have the perfect storybook life in order to have the perfect ending. And that is good news. Because of Jesus' resurrection, this present life is not all there is. There is a forever on the other side of this life with a resurrected, transformed you. A resurrected, transformed creation. That's the point the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. This was written about 15, maybe 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, he talks about the, the descriptions of the, uh, resurre- the, the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And then he says, our witness is true. If our witness of his resurrection is not true, Christianity is not true, and we are most to be pitied. But because it is true, because we did see him, These are, this is the implication of Jesus' resurrection for your life. And he goes through a number of things in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll just pick up verse 42. He says, so will it it be with the resurrection of the dead. This is your future if you're a believer in Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what you can know. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Some kind of a body that is is very much in the spiritual reality, even though a physical body. Just like Jesus' resurrected body. 
That's the kingdom of God. That's shalom, complete well-being, peace, complete healing of our humanity and all the relationships in the creation forever. We will be raised and reconciled to God. We'll be raised and reconciled to nature, to one another, and to ourselves. Raised imperishable. Raised in glory. Raised in power. Whatever that means. I'm not sure, but it's amazing, I'm sure. Raised a spiritual body. Still even more amazing yet. We have no idea. But if, if you believe in Christ, one day you will become truly human. Your true self. Not the self that's perishable and in dishonor and in weakness and death right now. But a resurrected true self. You have a huge, wide, tall, skyscraper window to look at your life through now. And that means that things that don't make sense to you now, right now, don't have to make sense to you right now for you to accept them. Because you have a bigger window. Because looking at our life through the big, tall, wide skyscraper window of forever changes the way we see hardships and disappointments and pain in our lives. If we believe the gospel because of Jesus' death and because of Jesus' resurrection for us, we know that life will have a happy ending for us. We know that. We know that God will always has God always has the bigger, always has the better view in mind for us. And if I know that this life is not all there is, if I know that God is moving me toward Jesus' eternal kingdom of forever, then I know that this moment of hardship, this moment of disappointment, this moment of pain is temporary and always eternally Purposeful. Notice how the Apostle Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians. We, we looked at this during our worship time, our singing time. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, and because of the resurrection, because of the window of forever he's looking through, here's what he can say. For, our, for momentary light, that's what it is through the window, affliction is producing for us. It's making. It's manufacturing. It's creating. It's sowing and harvesting for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the window. I have a huge, tall, wide skyscraper window to look at my hardships, to look at my disappointments through, my pain through. The window doesn't remove the pain. It doesn't remove my disappointments. It's not a magic wand that gets rid of my hardships. It doesn't do that at all. But it allows me to see my disappointments and see my hardships and see my pain differently and to have huge, wide, tall, skyscraper hope in my moments of hardship and disappointment and pain. A hope rooted in the resurrection assurance that God has guaranteed me that my affliction, whatever it is, my disappointment, whatever it is, my hardships, my pain, as painful as it is, is producing for me a glorious forever far beyond all comparison. None of them are wasted. All of them are purposeful. 
eternally purposeful. That's the window you see. Standing in front of the big, tall, wide skyscraper window of forever gives you an incredible vantage point to look at all of your life. You're able to see everything now from the vantage point of forever. Imagine if you did that. Imagine if you were in forever in the kingdom of God looking back on your life every moment now. How would you see it differently? How would the price tags and things be changed? Back to reality. See, when you look back on your life from eternity, look back on your life from eternity, you begin to see your role in the story. You are a key part in an amazing forever story. You're not just an extra on the outside of somebody else's story looking in. You're not just an extra having things done to you in someone else's story. You are part of a story that is forever, and you are a key role in that story. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 43, Jesus says, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. You're not just an extra. The resurrected Jesus says in Revelation 2.17, he says that he will give you a stone. This is poetry. This is a metaphor. We don't know what it means. It's something amazing. He will give you a stone with a name for you inscribed on it just for you that is known just between Jesus and you. I don't have any idea what that is, but it's something amazing. You are a key role in the story of forever. Forever, You have a key role. You're not an extra. When we live with forever in view, and when we look at life from that vantage point, we know that whatever it is, whatever it is, it's going to work out. I can't see it now. I have no idea how it's going to work out now. And it may be hard for a while, maybe quite a while, but because forever is true, and that's the big, wide, tall skyscraper window I'm looking at this through, I know it's going to work out. It is. Jesus tells us that we don't have to worry, we don't have to panic. We don't have to fret and do stupid things because we're looking through a small window at our circumstances. We have a big, wide, tall skyscraper window. We can come back to now from forever, and we can see it all together differently. We don't have to be like those who have small windows when they see their hardships, when they see their lives, when they worry about their futures. That's why he says in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. It's going to be okay. It's going to work out. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. Jesus promises that forever guarantees now is going to work out. There is a kind of humble. There is a kind of unspoken. There is a kind of quiet confidence that comes into your life and your demeanor when you look through that big, tall, high, wide skyscraper window at your circumstances. When you come back from forever in your mind, in your mind's eye, in your faith's eye, Coming back from forever, what will I wish I had done now? What will I, how would I handle this situation differently? How would I treat this person 
knowing the reality of forever. If I came back to now, how does that give, I would have all kinds of confidence. Humble, God's graced confidence. Quiet, unspoken, but a demeanor that's not anxious, not fretful, not worried, not panicky, and not mad at people who are obstacles to my happiness. Ask yourself, if I came back to now, to this moment from eternity, what would I do now? What would I believe about this? How would I respond? It would make a big difference. This big, wide, tall, high window of forever means that the good things in life are eternally better because of forever. It means that all of my relationships have this resurrection view, this glory, raised to glory, raised imperishable, raised in power, whatever that means, raised in spiritual reality, whatever that means, that is the potential of every single person I have a relationship with. That is the potential of every single person I meet. And if I see every person, especially my spouse, especially my kids, when I'm so frustrated with them, with the potential of the glory and power and the immortal reality of the resurrection, that is going to change now how I treat them, how I speak with them, what I think our future together is. <laughs> it's like what C.S. Lewis says, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, he says that you have never met, you've never encountered a mere mortal but because of the resurrection is true, because the future is certain, but you've met now, you've encountered someone whom if you saw them now as they will be then in the kingdom of God, raised imperishable, raised immortal, raised in glory, raised in power, raised spiritual, you would be tempted to worship them now. You shouldn't, but you'd be tempted to. Forever shines a light of glory on every relationship in your life. That's a big window. We can see everybody through. It changes how you see your family. You have an eternal role in your family. Your family is not just a pain in your life. Your family is not just something that happens because just life goes on. Your family is not just this big burden, this big problem. You have a role in your family assigned to you by God with enormous eternal consequences. You don't have to have the perfect marriage before you can be happily married. You know why? Because you believe in a resurrection. You don't have to have it all in this life because this life is not all there is. And so you don't have to find that soulmate or that forever mate or whatever that you have somebody now that God has assigned you. And just like my wife has to live with a jerk, she can still be happily married. I shouldn't be a jerk. But this life is not all there is. And when she looks at my, our marriage, when I look at our marriage, when you look at your marriage through that big, tall, wide skyscraper window of forever, it changes how you treat your family, your wife, your husband, your spouse. You no longer have to put the weight of forever satisfaction on them. They don't have to be your perfect soulmate. It puts a foreverness on your work, that your work, has a, is a, there's a foreverness to your service. There's a foreverness in how you do your job, how you do your work. There's a foreverness to your money. 
every digit you have in the bank, every coin you have in your pocket, every bill you have in your wallet has eternity stamped on it, one way or another. Jesus says that when we do with our money, believing in the kingdom of God, we are building treasure in heaven. There's a foreverness to everything. There's so many more things. Jesus says the kingdom of God is far closer than you possibly think. So repent and believe the good news. As the worship team comes back up, let's pray. Jesus, you have given us a tall, wide, huge skyscraper window to look out, to look at our lives and to see how far, how wide, how much light that brings in these eyes of faith, this window of faith. I pray that you would give all of us more and more so that we would, as you say, repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God, that we would connect every bit of our lives, every part of our lives, every one in our lives to forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.